Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, all right. Welcome back, Solar Warriors, to a Tactical Tuesday. Well, today isn't going to be as tactical as normal. It won't be as short either. It will be practical and useful. So I hope you'll stick around for part two of our interview with Mark Moroz. Mark Moroz is a true solar pioneer and lifelong dedicated educator for our industry. If you missed part one, it came out last Thursday. I really would encourage you to press pause here, hold your space. I'll hold it for you. Whatever podcast app you're in, we'll queue it up. Go back and listen to part one. While they don't necessarily need to go in order, I think that it would be helpful to have background on who Mark is before you dive in to today's episode. Today, Mark and I go into a lot on his theory of learning, as well as where he sees the world of virtual reality and whether or not we're ready for it. Is it ready for prime time? You know, things like Oculus and and many other headset makers are changing the way we think about virtual reality. The Oculus Quest 2 just came out, which is a fantastic headset that I'm really excited about. And I really hope that you'll have some takeaways from this episode as I did around the trade gap in many industries and how we are working towards training the next generation, all the hundreds of thousands of people we need both in the field and in the office to help make sure that the electricity sector is converted to clean and renewable energy. Mark's been at it since AstroPower and Spectralab. He has such an amazing pedigree And so I hope that you'll stick around not only for this episode, but I hope that you've gone back and listened to part one. And hey, if you're new here, I'm so honored that you are giving your time to check out Suncast. I hope that this will serve for you as a place of education, a place of career growth, the way it has for thousands of others. And you can dig in to more than 310 episodes of Founders Stories and Startup Advice in whatever podcast player you're in or over at mysuncast.com. You can also sign up to be notified every time we drop another episode. You can subscribe right there in your podcast app. And you can link up with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just stick around to the end. You'll hear more about how to do that. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we dive into part two of a very interesting and powerful conversation with my friend Mark Moreau's here on Suncast. For most who are not in the, maybe they're not in training generally or are unaware of these types of advancements, are there any good examples where instead of this being a future reality, this kind of learning and technology is being rolled out right now? I'm going to say yes. We talked about in the past that, you know, there are professional, you know, super industrial level aircraft based uh, simulation type training. Uh, if you were an airline pilot, you'd say, dude, this is what we we know how to do for a long time. But in terms of making it accessible to you and me, general public, certainly into uh, the solar space that I love, I'm going to have to mention that interplay learning 
I think is a is is leading the edge there. That particular organization has a number of dimensions that I think are good, not just uh, the VR technical side, which I'll talk about, but the fact that uh, that's an organization that is focused on trades training, skilled trades training. So the idea is not to pick up a, a single field, let's say solar or whatever, but to look at a broad range of kinesthetic learning uh, skills like uh, plumbing, uh, electrical, HVAC, solar, facilities management, stuff like that you can imagine. And that the matching of trades training with uh, VR and simulation-based learning is just supernatural. What's rolled out at Interplay Learning, I think, let me just describe it just for a second for folks, is that you can subscribe. Uh, it's inexpensive, and you can subscribe for a while. An individual or an organization can subscribe. Uh, you get a seat. And the idea is that you not only uh, can go in, let's say you want to learn more about HVAC or solar, you can learn about all the trades that they have. So an HVAC group can learn more about solar. A plumbing group can learn more about HVAC. It's really a, a, a wonderful way to run, in a sense, a, a, a little university. The idea is that there's a mixture of video-based lessons that teach you knowledge, you know, information that you want, but then you can put on, you can start moving your mouse around on the screen, or you can put on a headset and be in a VR world and actually interact with this equipment and these situations that you want to troubleshoot. You need to learn more about uh, electrical wiring troubleshooting or HVAC, uh, solving a problem with a compressor. You can actually do that in the 3D world. You can do that today. That's been going on for couple of years now. I joined back in 2016. And uh, what we did was we developed an entire curriculum. It's actually the beginning. I would call it version 1.0, okay? Not even 1.1 in terms of what we could do and where we could go. So the curriculum is what it is, but it can expand. But the idea is that in solar, I built it around uh, installation of residential solar system. So we made a few choices. We had to make choices like what kind of racking, what kind of inverter, what kind of uh, look of the module and so on. But you actually go from a blank roof, you snap the lines, you put up the rails, you put up the modules, you put in the wiring, you put in the conduit, you commission the system, you turn on the inverter. Uh, you can actually do all this stuff in VR, and you can do that today. How did you address which equipment to choose? I can think of a bunch of commercial ways to address that problem, but how did you think about it? Think back, you know, three years ago, 2016, 2017, I, I was trying to be fair uh, to, to, to be honest, the idea was to develop the, the real advantage of having uh, simulation-based training, computer-based training, is that you can do everything. <laughs> so you can have flat roofs, you can have tilted roofs, you can have Spanish tile roofs, you can have, you know, optimizer systems, microinverter systems. You can, you can have all of these things. So a regular training program, which I ran for years, is limited in time and space to the equipment that you can actually have on hand for the students to touch. With this simulation-based training, you can flip a switch and have eight, nine, ten different scenarios available to you. So that power inexpensively amplifies any training program offering that you know normally you you go to now. I made some initial choices not to stick with them, but to be the beginning of what would be other choices. So I looked around and I said optimizer systems were pretty hot. Solar Edge is good. I kind of copied that equipment, but I didn't actually replicate it you know, detail by detail. Quick mount PV mounts are pretty common. So I used that. I used a comp shingle roofing instead of S-tile. I just made individual choices that were not meant to be, this is the end all and be all, but this is the beginning. And it doesn't, I presume it doesn't say quick mount or solar edge. Right. No, we, we rubbed all that out. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Right. Very interesting. So it's here today and interplay as one example 
is a platform that allows you to get in and get hands-on. I think this is going to really revolutionize the long tail, what we call the long tail of installation. And it's what's going to make it such a regionalized skill. A lot of, you see a lot of the Sunruns of the world, uh, Sunrun, Solar, uh, Solar City before Tesla, uh, even Tesla now, Vivint, Blue Raven. There's a ton of uh, residential companies now who have a nationwide footprint. And even they use, by and large, local labor. So the thing that I see happening in the residential solar space in particular is that the sales and marketing can happen at a national level, but the installation is almost always a regional or super regional company. Thinking Titan, as an example, is kind of super regional. They have a huge swath of the west and south of the United States where they have a market uh, for installations. But even they, as a turnkey solar installer, are going to be challenged by platforms like this that allow, as you say, someone to kind of walk into this virtual world, not need to go to Colorado and train with SEI, not need to send all of their people to a location physically. They can now go in a virtual world and get that kinesthetic training that allows not only someone who's working at a regional, uh, you know, a regional plumber in South Carolina, but frankly, someone who is a mason in rural Guatemala, to the extent that they have access to this technology and internet connection, they can become solar technicians. Exactly. And so, you know, you got to be careful and, uh, you know, you watch, you know, Ready Player One or a bunch of movies that we see and go, wow, this is pretty incredible. So I would ask everyone to go back and watch Lawnmower Man. Nobody recognizes that. Go back and see what we thought VR was going to be back in the day. But the idea is that it doesn't completely replicate hands-on training. Come on. You don't get the feel of a tool. You don't get the feel of a module and so on. But you get really close. And this is, the, this is from a trainer's point of view, okay? I'm not a VR advocate right now. I'm a training advocate right now. From that point of view, you want your training to be effective and efficient. Training is expensive in many, many ways. It takes people away from doing their job right now. You say, hey, you know, do training instead of doing your job. There's a cost there. If you have to travel to training, there's all the costs involved with that. Not only my time, my opportunity costs and what else I could be doing, travel costs and so on. So training is expensive and it can become out of date quickly. Now, there, there's some bits of training that are uh, solid, you know, how to deal with people or whatever can be a can be a common thing that lasts for years. But a technological based training can, you know, become outdated pretty quickly. So you want to be able to keep it up to date. The idea is that right now, a lot of solar companies, a lot of solar practitioners will say, hey, I need to hire some new install guys. Maybe that's where my greatest turnover is. For example, I need to hire some guys. Hey, get on a roof and follow Joe. And, you know, watch his shoulder. He's going to teach you what to do. He'll be the crew lead. But the trouble is you have eight different Joes in eight different locations teaching in eight different ways. You don't have quality control. You don't have, you don't have a style and a solid foundation for that knowledge. And also, you may only learn what Joe knows. And maybe Joe never learned about, you know, IV curves or something like that, but he's a great installer. So the idea of being able to offer inexpensively, you know, online, to almost anyone on their phone, on their tablet, or on their computer, or with a VR headset, some sort of uniform training so that the foundation is laid for all of your hires inexpensively and very initially when they're brought on. Then when they get on the roof and watch Joe, they already know about mounts, techniques, safety, OSHA, fundamentals of solar. They already know this stuff and they've learned it in a kinesthetic way, not a theoretical way where they were half asleep in a classroom. So you've got a much more efficient onboarding process ready to go where somebody gets on. And like I've said before, if you take them from A to M with your initial training, they can go from M and finally get to Z 
and really be a productive worker very quick. You can also use it as a bit of a filter. If somebody doesn't get it or has some problems or maybe shows a propensity in one direction versus another, you can use that as a part of your onboarding to help, you know, have you choose, you know, which people are best to go where. But the idea is that this uh, this simulation-based training, VR-based training, is particularly well-matched to a trades type of skill. I'm not talking about using this to train someone how to run Aurora or do system design. I'm talking about using it for people that are going to, maybe for designers, so they really understand what the systems are that they're designing. But for installation, maintenance, operation, troubleshooting, those skills, it's perfect. You know, as I'm listening and thinking about this, there's the trades gap, but broadly, there's also generally a skills gap across the value stream, getting people, I mean, you hear Jigger Shaw and, and others at the think tank level in our industry talking about how do we get enough people in our industry and train them up adequately to be able to grow at the scale that we need to address climate change appropriately right. over the next 20, you know, 10, even 20 years, right. um, you know, millions of people need to add. It makes me think hands-on kinesthetic training. That's great. Um, you don't quite get that in VR, but, but we're probably getting there with uh, haptic gloves and the like. Right. Yeah, um, right. Right. But what about the opportunity that I see for, you know, massively multiplayer online game style training for other soft skills? I see that, you know, in the pandemic, uh, virtual platforms have really begun to gain momentum. I mentioned uh, you and I talked a bit about Verbello, which is a platform that we're using and that a couple of other folks that we know, like Osea, are using for their conferences. This is a platform that EXP, some may know EXP as the fastest growing real estate company in the world. That's a virtual real estate company. They have no offices. So they actually bought this platform for Bella and they created it as their campus for training. How do you see this kind of tech augmenting the reach and possibility of what we currently think of as training? I see it certainly taking a, a bigger and bigger role. Absolutely. I've played with Verbella. I've played in some of these systems already. And so- Oh, cool. What do you think? <laughs> uh, they're very, very new. So we all have a lot to learn about them and the platforms have to learn about us as human beings and users. It's interesting. I'll be very honest. My first encounter with Verbella was uh, negative. I, I very briefly saw it being demonstrated and so on. And I thought, oh, this seems kind of dorky and it seems like a gimmick, but I've spent more time in there. And once I got used to the navigation abilities and uh, I was led by a super user who was able to give me a tour of the facilities, I was able to see demonstrations of how it could actually be functionally helpful where you could bring up multiple screens, you could have multiple ways of interacting with people. I began to come around. But let me be very upfront and clear that these worlds are going to require us to learn how to work in them. There's going to be an etiquette. There's going to be a style of learning, an ability, a pre-learning of how to, how to move around. Like not breaking out in samba dancing. In, Absolutely. In you not have like someone right next to you sitting at a table break into a dance or walk through you five times because they think it's cool. So we're going to be learning just like everyone's, you know, getting up to speed now, let's say on Zoom or other platforms like that. And we're beginning to appreciate and develop an aesthetic, like turn off your mics, things like that. that that's so simple, right? That's going to have to be multiplied by a hundred times in the VR world, but we're going to get there as well. There's going to be, there's going to be styles of learning interacting that, that we're going to adopt. Yeah. Not to mention the hardware that, I mean, I've, I'm running a, a very modern laptop and it struggles under the weight of Verbella. And I can only imagine when you get into more heavyweight virtual world, haptic glove, uh, you know, a thousand plus people 
in that world at a time, uh, the amount of computing power required to run this is just unfathomable right now. Yeah, but I follow what you're saying, and I think that's true. And I think we're going to accomplish that super fast, super easy. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Because and why? Because there's money in it. <laughs> oh, come on, come on, for sure. And you know, our, our technical abilities are going quite quickly. What we what we have to pay attention to a lot is the the social and mental processes that go along with what this technology allows. That's where we lag behind. And, you know, we have to catch up with all of that. Well, I'll take it a little pedestrian for those who maybe aren't as interested in going to a conference on a virtual world, but maybe are thinking because they have children about playing, just playing around with VR. What do you perceive to be maybe the under $500 best consumer ready headset that uh, I could buy if I wanted to try this out myself? I shouldn't be a, an advocate for this stuff. I, I, cannot say that I'm a gamer and that I'm totally on top of everything. So let me caveat with that. However, certainly what comes to mind, for example, is Oculus Quest. So there's an example. Go ahead and look at that and then look at competition. But the idea is that what people have to understand is that go back 10 years. Okay. You could probably get a VR headset that was really clunky and complex for maybe, you know, 15,000, 20,000. Go back three years when I started with Interplay Learning, we started using headsets that had wires that connected you and you had to run a a gaming laptop. So there's a two, three thousand, four thousand dollar laptop that you had to connect to that had to be fast enough. And there was a cord from your head that had to go to this thing. And you had to set up two towers, you know, eight, 12 feet apart that would demarcate the rectangle in which you were so that you wouldn't walk out of that space. That was just three years ago. And that probably cost $8,000. Today, you can have VR in a shoebox. You can take out an Oculus Quest, which is just a headset, no wires, and two controllers, which by the way, are, are pretty cool. That's it. You put on the headset, it connects wirelessly to any laptop. You are given a view from within the headset of black and white. You trace out with your hand controller, like a laser, a rectangle around you. That's it. You don't have to set up the towers around you. And within literally a minute, let's say you've set it up and you're running and it costs 300 bucks, not 15,000, not 5,000, 300. That's a third of the cost of a cell phone. So the technological changes are, you know, way here now. Let's not consider that to be a threshold that has to be crossed. Well, I wanted to round out the conversation around training with something that I know for you is a core component to how you think about curriculum development in the 21st century and really going into uh, sort of a whole new paradigm of learning in many ways. I've heard you speak about the difference between sort of the old model and the new model, the old model being very instructor focused, the expert sharing or dispensing knowledge. Help me understand the way you perceive an evolution in training happening right now. It's funny to talk about this. This, this really gets to the core of what, what I, I love and I get my voice rises and I start talking fast to get my heart starts beating fast. So there you go. But the distinction that we can draw here is in general between instructor-focused training and learner-focused training. Don't even have to say student. So what's the difference between being learner-focused and being instructor-focused? The, the end result is, you know, knowledge being gained by somebody, whatever. Okay, but we've deviated. And in, in, in fact, what gets me so excited about the technological choices that we have available to us now is that we're basically able to start coming back to where we came from hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago in the first place. We went through an industrial revolution and a lot of evolution in terms of our societies and learning, education, training, but schooling 
followed along with that and supported the Industrial Revolution, where we tried to standardize job roles, standardize knowledge, quickly get people up to speed with enough knowledge so they can run machines and run our factories. And now we have the modern capitalistic world. However, that missed a lot of the human qualities of what makes us people. Put that on the side. It diminished that. It said, if you can't sit in a classroom and learn from a teacher lecturing and writing on a chalkboard, that you're somehow a, a lesser of a you know, potential citizen than someone who picks that up quickly. And that's wrong. And we just know that intuitively. But we're, you know, a lot of us were, you know, shut down or had difficulty in school and so on, because we just don't learn that way. I just can't follow a lecture or whatever. A lot of us can, you know, I'm, I'm that way. I'm, I'm super good at picking up lecture. And I did well in college because I have that way of learning. If you're what's often called a divergent learner, <laughs> if, if you're divergent, what does that mean? You're, you're deviant? No. It just means that you do things in a different way. And the promise of what we're facing now, and all this technology is leading us more in this direction, is that we can now look at personalized learning and training way more than we've been able to do, let's say, in the last couple hundred years. Okay. In the past, when you had an apprentice system or even a little schoolhouse in the, in the prairie, you'd have individual attention. You'd have a teacher teaching maybe 12 kids. Everyone would get their own instruction apprentice master sort of relationship, you had a one-on-one -on -one relationship and your instruction was personalized to what you were getting, what you weren't getting. We've deviated from that. We're now getting back to the, being able to technologically go back to the way we should, which is to be able to support that individualized learning. So the idea is that we're, we're very used to instruction being, you know, lecture-based, sit down, I'm going to talk for 30 minutes. I want you to take notes and listen. Basically, I'm an expert. That's good. I have a lot of knowledge. I'm going to give it to you. Blech. Okay, so I put it out and I expect it to somehow somehow merge into your neurons and somehow get into your brain. What everyone should understand is that learning takes effort. You cannot simply take a pill, sorry, and just learn stuff. Uh, and you can't simply impose what I know into your brain structure. It takes effort. And learning methodologies should support the in invisible internal process of learning that goes on inside of everyone's brain. There's an internal process where I maybe explain something, but I've got to create lessons, exercises, remediation, visual ways of showing it, kinesthetic ways of showing it, whatever I can do. I've got to make some, my job is to support your method of learning it yourself through your effort. And if I can train it around, so instead of saying, I'm an expert, here's my knowledge, bloop, I put it out there, and I expect that knowledge to somehow be replicated in your brain, that's instructor-focused training. It works sometimes. But if we can change our perspective to be learner-focused training, you start out a program. You start it out, not by, let's say, filling out a bunch of PowerPoints with all the knowledge that you have, make it death by PowerPoint, and say, look, I did it. I have my 100 slides, and the knowledge is there. I've done the training program. No. You start before that, and you say, what do I want them to know, and how can I support them learning it? Is it by reading? Is it by an exercise? Is it by imagining something? Is it by a Socratic method where I ask questions and I make you give me the answers? And then based on that, we go further rather than me giving you the answers right away. These are the methods of being learner-focused that would revolutionize training and learning so that it becomes way more effective, way more permanent inside of somebody's mind because they put it together themselves based on whatever you you put out there to support their learning. I love that focus, the way you brought it back. And what I took 
from that is from a curriculum design perspective, the two fundamental questions that you need to ask before starting to build out a program for would-be learners, for your students, is what do I want them to know and how can I support their learning it? Which actually, from an enrollment perspective, requires that you are engaging with them in a way that allows you to learn in some way their learning style. And most broadly, learning styles have been broken into kind of three big buckets, visual, auditory, auditory, and kinesthetic, as you, as you pointed out. One of the things that I often talk about with clients, just from a content generation perspective and for big companies that are trying to create content for internal consumption, what I see is they often will create the content in the format that whoever's creating it knows how to learn, right? So you'll see very commonly an academy and that academy is a bunch of articles, right? Even a kinesthetic learner who would be turned off by reading an article. They'd be more engaged by a video, which is why video is so prolific right now. And I am an auditory learner. So lo and behold, why do I migrate towards creating podcasts? Because I learn from podcasts. Uh, One of the folks that I see in the uh, marketing space that gets this right is a guy named Russell Brunson who created ClickFunnels. And I remember really early on, he was creating Facebook Lives. He was creating literal books, physical manuals to send to to every, like he creates so many diagrams that he'll just mail you. But he also is creating every day a podcast. And he was thinking, how do I reach the people I want to reach in any manner of multimedia that they might want to consume? And I just see so few marketers in particular thinking that way. Yeah. And let me, let me add something in here as well. I've, I've studied and feel pretty strong about instructional design as a science. There's a distinction that you can draw between media and method. Sounds pretty close. So a media would be like video or reading or, you know, hands-on. Okay. That's a media. A method is an abstraction from that. It's how are you engaging the mind? For example, you can run a podcast, you can make a, an, a, a video lesson, okay, and you want to teach about a subject, I don't know, microinverters or something like that. Typically, what someone will do is they'll say, oh, I'm going to speak, and I'm also going to do video, and I'm going to also show you the, the, the product itself, so I'm going to show you some hardware, and I'm being cool. I'm, I'm giving you all sorts of different ways of learning. No, you're simply using a media, your audio or video, you're presenting that information. The method would be thinking about how you're going to do it. For example, do you simply start and then start talking, blah, and explain everything out? Or do you use a Socratic method where you start out by saying, what do you think a microinverter does? What's an analogy to a microinverter? Is it more like an apple or is it more like a waterfall? If you start asking questions, that's a learning method. You can do that in video. You can do that in podcasts. You can do that with written. You're using different media there. But if you're twisting around the method, that's what's fundamentally changing the way that someone learns. So for example, you could run a podcast where you simply lecture. That could be as effective or ineffective as doing a video where you lecture or doing a stand-up where you stand up for 30 minutes in front of a classroom and you lecture. It can be just as effective or ineffective because you're just using that method of me spieling and you listening. But if you think about methods of learning, a classic sort of dream of mine that I'd always love and I haven't fully implemented in any place, but I I like it. What if you were to do a training program, let's say in solar, let's say on, uh, you know, installing, whatever. And the whole course was based on troubleshooting. You started out without any lecturing about IV curves or, you know, NEC code or anything like that. You simply started out by saying, here's a system and I measure something and it's not working. Let's figure out what's wrong. That's the complete method that you use. And you start backwards and you start working from something that's installed and not working. Is it this? 
No. Is it this? Oh, yeah. Look what we just found. Oh, that's cool. Now, here's another problem. Let's troubleshoot that. I'm not going to tell you what it is. We're just going to start troubleshooting it. It's fun. It's the natural way that the brain works. We wake up in the morning as a, you know, as a caveman or whatever, and we've got a brain that can solve problems because we've got to stay alive. If you engage that kind of thinking in your learning, that's using a training method that is perhaps super engaging compared to somebody going, okay, I'm just going to listen to you talk for the next 15 minutes and I'm, I hopefully I can absorb what you're going to say. But if, if all the way along it was a bunch of questions or a bunch of problem solving, or maybe you said, oh, we could do it this way, or you could do it this way, or what do you think we should do? Listeners, let, let's do a little poll and see what you guys think. If we more engage that way, that's a completely different way of approaching the issue of getting the knowledge across. You want to make sure that eventually by the end, you, you cover all the points that you wanted to do, but you've approached it from a different point of view. And that's what I'm saying about think about method first. Actually, you start at the end. In, the, in, in fact, the best way to do a training program, a lot of people say, you know, write up your learning objectives, blah, blah, blah. I think those are typically done as just pablum. People write those up. After thinking, you know, I've already made my PowerPoints. What were the main points that I made? Okay, those are my learning objectives. And you kind of do it backwards, and that's half-assed. If you start out by saying, what do I really want you to know? This, 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 and you make a big list. And then you start with an exam. If you really want them to know something, it's worth asking a good question about at the end, right? It's worth it. So make up your exam. Make it a big exam, 100 questions. All the things that you want them to be able to know so that if they left the class, you'd feel confident. And then you work backwards from that and make sure that you have training materials that teach to every one of those questions. That's working backwards. And that's the best way to create a training program. Not start forward, like you said, with an expert who knows a bunch of stuff. Okay, I'm going to put it out in a bunch of PowerPoints. Boop. Okay, I've created my training program. Oh, let me come up with some questions about what I said. Okay, and you're doing it in that way. I think that's actually working backwards, even though that it's, it's typically thought of as being working forwards. I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list but can be such a drag. Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. Are there particular people in the past, maybe you've known them or maybe you just looked at them with uh, sort of with great esteem, but that you consider mentors and how did they help mold the way that you approach work and, and maybe even how you approach life? How do these mentors in, impact your life and career? Richard Feynman is an example for me. So my background is in physics and stuff like that. Richard Feynman is, is perhaps well known to a lot of people, super smart guy involved in the Manhattan Project and so on, developed quantum electrodynamics, a whole bunch of real fancy stuff. And he's a professor at Caltech and I went to Harvey Mudd and that's a rival school. So there you've got that. But there's an example of a guy, kind of like Carl Sagan as well, those kind of guys that you know are kind of cool. You can make them legendary, whatever, they're really just human beings. They put on pants one leg at a time, you know, just like everybody else. But Feynman, to me, is an example of someone who smiles at the world. He's not so much in reverence to the world as just being amused by it. And that's the way I feel about this stuff, too. It's funny. Think about this guy. Professor Julius Sumner Miller. Probably don't know this guy. Julius Sumner Miller was a TV 
teacher was a, a teacher at like a community college, probably back when I was a kid. So in the sixties, let's say had a TV show and he, he had a phrase, uh, why are things as they are and not otherwise? And he would say it like this, why are things as they are and not otherwise? And I saw this as a kid. There's an example of something that just inspired me to be able to look at things sideways. And I typically approach the world as a child. I am in wonder of it. I love it. I embrace it. I don't reject it, but I don't take it at face value. I'm always trying to see the other side of things. That's why, you know, VR is so cool because you put on a headset, you can turn your head around and look at something from a different point of view. But I don't take things at face value. And, you know, just to be able to do that, man, it could be moral learning. It could be how to run a microinverter. I don't care. I don't take it at face value. I want to see something else. I want to see it from a different point of view. What if it's not that way? Are you sure? And that that's just me, maybe, I guess. It just runs in my mind. And by doing that, things stay fun. They just stay interesting. Something that I thought I knew, I keep questioning. And all of a sudden, boop, I'm looking at it from a different point of view. It's like, whoa, I get to think about this in a different way. And it, I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of saying, oh my God, everything I knew is now false or something like that. No, I don't feel that way. It's like everything you know is way more complicated than you think it is. <laughs> and all you have to do is just, you know, let life give you time to learn more about it and yourself. Is there a particular time in your career that maybe was unfun, but for you was an, a period of learning? Uh, I mean, sometimes folks will couch this as a dead end or a failure and Many times in entrepreneurial ventures, they'll say it's a pivot. We ran out of, uh, of runway on this, but we kept the vision and switched the method. Where in your career did, did, some, did something that maybe looked like a failure turn into teaching and, and, and propel you forward after, afterward? It's interesting. This kind of wraps up to something. Um, a couple of, couple of things going on. What I want to say is that I've gone through stages, you know, working at Arco Solar and then Siemens Solar. That was a 20-year stint. Other places as well. After a few years, I mean, after 20 years, <laughs> or even after three or four years, I just start stalling. You can just tell. I'm an energetic person. I'm a pretty positive person and so on. And I was just at various places in my career. I've been able to notice that, man, I am a boring person right now. I am not firing on all eight cylinders. I am just going through the motions. I'm repeating myself. Something is a little bit dead inside of me now. I haven't died. Not, you know, I'm not going crazy, but something's starting to die and it just feels gray. And I, I now recognize that at the time it's scary, but what I've been able to do, I guess, is recognize that, not fall victim to it and saying, you know, I'm over, or this is the way life is. It's going to be this way forever. I reject that. I, I demand that it can be more fun, more better. And what you have to be able to do, if I can talk to people and just say something, which is, again, it sounds, you know, uh, old and stayed, you know, wisdom is stuff that has been around a lot. And we hear it a lot because it's actually true. You've got to follow your heart. You really, really do. Honestly, everyone. <laughs> and if you find yourself in a place where things are going well, don't mock it. You're there. It's good. You're fine. And if you find yourself in a place where you're just dead, you're, you're dead inside, something's not right. You're just not in connection with your heart. There may not be a voice that says, doing, I, I need to be a, a this or a that. If you just open yourself for the world, there's a phrase that, that I, I follow a lot. And someone said it to me pretty smart, I think. They said, 
your life moves in the direction of what you think about most of the time. It's kind of a calm statement, but I, I follow that now. And when I find myself daydreaming and constantly thinking about, let's say, you know, a house in France that I'd like to live to or uh, some sort of role that I'd like to play because it'd be cool. You know, if you find yourself daydreaming about something, that's where you are. <laughs> that's where your heart is. And if you can, if you can afford to, if you can find the strength and the wherewithal to move in that direction, that'll straighten you out. I often try to look up uh, these kinds of things as quotes because I'm a, I'm a quote hoarder. Yeah. And it turns out this quote is attributed to a, a guy named Craig Groeschel. Your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Do you have a date for that? Do you know where it came from? I don't. Okay. Uh, I also see that it's attributed to several other people, but you know how this is with quotes on the internet. So yeah, uh, yeah for, who, sure. Who, for sure. Who knows, honestly. But it's yeah. accredited. It's accredited to Craig Goschel, uh, who's a pastor, and so I've seen it now kind of show up in a couple of different things as I was searching. But it does seem like there's another guy, Sanjeev Sutradhar. I think you could probably come up with any quote, create a meme out of it, and it'll oh, and sure. it'll fly as yours in some in some realm. But that's so true. We are in in, in every way the sum of our thoughts, and the reality that we that we ponder becomes the reality that we that we experience. It's easy to say, right? If somebody's in good shape, they can give advice to somebody who's perhaps not or searching around. It, in some ways, it's, it's a little bit cheap. But honestly, everybody's got to be able to be a little bit brave, take a risk, move in a direction that you feel as opposed to perhaps, you know, is explained to you as being logically the way to go. If something just doesn't feel right and something else feels right, you should really pay attention to that. And that, that's what's happened to me is that when I've found myself in places where, you know, all eight cylinders are clicking and I'm doing great, it's like, whoa, something's wrong here. You're not supposed to be happy. It's like, dude, yes, you are. This is the natural state of where you can be. And you just happen to be good right now. And if you find yourself in a place where it's like, nothing is right, this is wrong, you got to listen to that. What happens, it's so crazy. You know, somebody asks you a question, it's like, uh, you know, what's the person that inspires you? Boom. The first thing that comes into your mind is what you should pay attention to. And instead, we mull it over and we go, no, it shouldn't be that trivial. It should be someone like my father or some pastor or something. I got to come up with something really cool now. No, that's not true. Whatever came up instantly was actually what was most important for you. And you should, you should be brave and follow that. I'll share a couple of examples of this that I've learned uh, over the last few years of thinking about how to help my coaching clients too. So there's one that uh, I use as a personal example for myself. I used to agonize. I'd be that guy who asked the server at a restaurant a million questions about each item on the menu until <laughs> I had until I had really noodled and decided the best option from the menu because I may never come back to that restaurant. I wanted to eat the thing that was going to surprise me the most. And invariably, and I began to I began to just sort of measure this when I once I realized I was doing this, I began to notice what was the first thing I chose, and then what I started to notice is not uh, unironically, the thing that I ended up ordering was usually, I would say with 90% accuracy, the first thing that I did, that I, my heart called to. So when I read the menu, so as a way to avoid that, especially because most of these meals were business meals uh, and you don't want to be that guy in a business meal who's like asking a hundred questions of the server. I just made it my purpose that I give myself two minutes uh, and almost sometimes I'll, I would watch on my watch and by the end of two minutes, I'd make my decision and I would never let it go beyond that. Uh, so that's one forcing function to force yourself to listen to your instinct. 
The other, I hear people all the time saying, should I do A or A or B? I will say, and I would encourage anyone listening to consider this hack. It is something that you can have someone else help you with. So just take out a coin, it could be any coin. I've literally used just a random round object in the room, like the lid of a, of a jar and call one side heads and the other side tails. And you put option A as heads, option B as tails, and you flip the coin. And then when you catch it, you put your hand over it. Many would say, okay, the reveal is that you look at it. And if it was tails, then you have to choose that, right? The trick is this. No, answer it before you open your hands. That's exactly right. You've already got the answer. You already thought it through within like a millisecond. That's exactly right. You ask yourself. That's exactly right. It's a quickening moment. And you come to the, which is the one that I hope, I most hoped would not be stolen from me. Yeah. By this process. Yeah. And that's yeah. the answer. No, you, you said two minutes. I, I'm surprised. I would say 20 seconds. Yeah. For me now, it's just whatever I, whenever it's the, whatever the first thing is I see on the menu that, that is a logical, like, I'm like, okay, that sounds great. I take that. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah. But it, when, you got to take into consideration. I'm saying my forcing function was two minutes when I used to take 10. So, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I now, I mean, I think now my rule is 30 or 30 or 60 seconds, but that nonetheless, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's a, you got to yeah. create these force, forcing functions. <laughs> you mentioned Richard Feynman. Uh, I know that you have, uh, multiple higher, uh, education degrees. Uh, therefore I know that you probably read a lot here. We believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. And I'd love to know if there is a book or maybe a collection of books that you've recommended or gifted the most and why. That's interesting. I, I, uh... You prompted me ahead of time with that question. I'm, I'm glad you did. Uh, uh, I've thought about it for before we got started. So certainly there's there's a lot that's happened over my life. So let me just list out some things, though, because I've got some right on my desk right here, mm-hmm. right here, <laughs> that um, are current. So I mentioned one. It's The Prophet. Ah, uh, yeah. Gil yeah. It was given to me by my dad. And um, I still have the book that he gave me. And I've given it out to my, my children and so on. I find that, you know, extremely uh, insightful. Okay. There you go. There's a number of them here. There's like a few working backwards. The current book that I'm reading right now is, uh, it can't happen here written by Sinclair Lewis. It was written in like 1933 and it was his take on an election in 1936. This is based on reality. So it was based on uh, the election with, uh, uh, Roosevelt around the time of the depression, the rise of Nazi Germany and so on. And the idea is it says it can't happen here. And it's a book about how it can happen here. It's his fictional account of how our democratic process in the United States in the 1930s led to the election of basically an authoritarian leader instead of Roosevelt. And it's, it's frighteningly plausible. It just walks through all the things that can happen. So that's, you know, I'm reading that because of what we're going through right now is inspired to, to do that. But a couple of things just to show you how, where my head goes. There's a book that really, really touched me, and it's called Ishmael. I-S-H-M-A-E-L, Ishmael, yeah, by Daniel Quinn. For those that don't know about it, um, you can dismiss it and stuff because basically it's uh, narrated by a gorilla that talks to a guy. It doesn't matter. The point is, it's a story that illuminated for me an amazing picture of how we've gotten to where we are right now, both evolutionarily and uh, philosophically and religiously. I highly recommend it as a, as a real challenge to your way of thinking about humanity. I'm talking about 20,000, 15,000 years ago, how we evolved and or diverged from a more interconnected sense of ourselves with the world to being disconnected and how that's caused a lot of pain. Further on to that, there's a book I've read called The Chalice and the Blade 
And that talks a lot about religion. Again, I'm, I'm very focused on uh, religion a lot. After that, I read a book called When God Was a Woman, because it talked a lot about the goddess versus the god and how things were. And this goes back again to maybe things about 10,000 years ago and how the Neolithic period was more focused on the earth, the earth mother, as opposed to being God in the sky. So there's an example of the kind of stuff that's occupying my brain. Do you know Ishmael? I have not read that, no. I would love to talk to you after you've read that. Okay. Just just as a human being to another human being and with mm-hmm. a, a brain that is, I think, open to things. Indeed. Yeah. I, uh, I've just pulled it up. I will be... I'll be grabbing this one probably in audiobook form because uh, yep. it's only uh, six bucks in audio form, which is great. Yeah. It's interesting about that, too. I've, I've listened to audiobooks. Some I, I don't tend to go for that. I listen to podcasts and stuff. I get information. But honestly, when I read a book, I form those, those mental images and those vocal images in my head. And for some other voice to dictate that to me, uh, you know, for the first time, maybe it's okay. But it, it really takes away that ability for you to form that voice that you would hear in your head from a character, you know, so, you know, I go for it for sure. I'm just commenting on the fact that uh, I've, I've learned with audiobooks that uh, if it's nonfiction, that's okay. But if it's, you know, I mean, if it's fictional, I I prefer to read it. Yeah. I just don't have, uh, I don't take the time in the day to sit down and read. I mean, last night I did, but I do have lots of times where I'm doing idle things like washing dishes or walking or driving uh, where, where I consume this type of content. As I've got Ishmael pulled up, I love the way it's described. It says one of the most beloved and best-selling novels of spiritual adventure ever published. The way that summary (laughs) says it's teacher seeks pupil must have an earnest desire to save the world. Apply in person. (laughs) That's right. And this guy actually approaches what ends up being a gorilla in a cage and he's, he, he can telepathically communicate. So some people can dismiss that and go, Oh, this is kind of bullshit. Well, come on. If you read the Bible and you read stories about a, a bush that burns, but doesn't get consumed or somebody that lives inside of a whale for three days or whatever, come on. We have all sorts of stories that simply have vehicles that get across the, the message. And it's the message that's important. I think this might be one of the best recommended books of all time on Suncast. The way I'm, <laughs> I'm reading this Mark and, uh, and we have some real readers on uh, listeners to the show. Uh, our book recommendations are consumed by, I mean, most folks will listen to the end to hear the book recommendations. It says here, so begins an utterly unique and captivating novel in Ishmael, which received the Turner Tomorrow Fellowship for the best work of fiction, offering positive solutions to global problems. Daniel Quinn parses humanity's origins and its relationship with nature in search of an answer to this challenging question. How can we save the world from ourselves? I think never was there a better time for us to answer and con- and contemplate that question than now. Thank you for this book recommendation. That is fantastic. You're really welcome. I'm glad that I could bring it up. Is there a particular habit or consistent practice that shows up for you that's given you leverage or momentum in your life? I exercise a lot. That's really important for me. I know that when I don't exercise, I'm weaker, uh, not just physically, but you know, overall. And uh, when I do exercise uh, every day, uh, that, that leads me to be more of a whole person. But my daughter, I think, has come up with a phrase for me that I've, I've adopted. I, I, I accept it. She says, I'm like a tourist in my own life. You can imagine what that means, but it's like, if you were to, if you were to watch me, it, you're talking about what I do every day, and it's not something I do rit- ritualistically, but like, I go out in the morning and get a paper. I always look at the sky. Is it cloudy? What is it like? And I don't just glance at it. I actually look at clouds. I stand there and I look at them. 
Okay, sounds pretty weird, right? But I'm just looking around and I'm listening. When I take my dogs for a hike, I try to go for a hike with them every day, a couple miles up in the hills behind us. I often listen to podcasts while I'm doing that. So that, that's one way that I get my time done. But I also turn it off and I just stop. This is a remote place. It's pretty quiet. And I just stop and I listen for like a minute. And I'll focus in and I'll realize there's a bird chirping probably a mile away, but I can hear it. Or maybe I'm hearing grass, or maybe it's bees, or maybe it's frogs somewhere. You know, little sounds that I didn't notice because I was walking along and my foot was making noise. But if I stop and I just listen and look, right? So the looking is like looking at clouds and stuff, or I'll look at a tree and I'll stand there and I'll watch it for a minute and, and I'll see it move in the wind. That's it. Okay. This sounds pretty doo-doo, but it's like, that's the way that I can check back in. And then I'm like recharged for like a second that lasts me the whole day long. Mark, we've covered a bunch of ground. Uh, I know that uh, more than a handful of our solar warriors in the tribe are going to want to connect with you. How could they best do that? You know, probably the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I check with that. I've, I've actually, you know, stepped away from Facebook. I rejoin now just to be with uh, some friends, but, and there's email, of course, but LinkedIn, I check all the time. I learn a great deal from that <laughs> about solar. I follow Jigger and you and a whole bunch of other people. It's how we got connected. Yeah. So LinkedIn is, is a pretty fine way to go. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we always link to the LinkedIn of each guest. So I'm sure that folks will seek you there. Let's end today, as we always do with a bold prediction. Mark, what one thing do you see happening in the market and the world that you inhabit that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Having been in the industry a long time, I've seen it go through some evolutionary cycles, right? Early on, uh, photovoltaics, uh, the manufacturers were the center of gravity because they made the cell and that was magic. Then we got to um, smart inverters so we could go grid tied. So the inverter manufacturer and intelligent inverters became the center of gravity. Then we got to financial engineering. So leases, PPAs, things like that. So it wasn't technological, but it was, a, it was sort of financial engineering that became the center of gravity and really changed things. Now, even though we had batteries before, now we've got intelligent storage systems, inexpensive systems that can interact with standalone and with the grid. So now we've got storage as like the greatest thing. Everyone's focused on storage. It's like, okay, we're there. That's it. Come on, dudes. If we've gone through that many changes in center of gravity, there's another one coming. Okay. <laughs> and I can predict it. We can talk about it and stuff. And there'll be more after that. But if I was to jump ahead one step, honestly, it would be the, the interconnectivity of what we're of what we're developing here. So technologically, we've got great stuff coming, got smart batteries, smart inverters, smart modules, whatever. We need smarter people, but we need a smart grid as well. So all these things have to like work together. So if I was to look ahead to like the next, I don't know, it's not going to be a breakthrough, but it's going to be an evolutionary mega, uh, a paradigm shift. It'll be for all of our energy generation systems and our energy consumption systems to be interconnected. And I mean, I mean like the, the breakthrough of going from standalone computers to the internet and having computers being connected to each other and how that's exploded what's going on. It's not just because Apple made a cool thing or whatever. A standalone Mac was a fun thing, but it wasn't a breakthrough that we needed. But the interconnectivity of computers now is the breakthrough that we're all living with right now. So if we can look at energy, generation, consumption, monitoring, security, selling and buying, investing, if that becomes more democratized, 
so that it moves from utilities down to individuals and I can sell to my neighbor. Uh, I can get SREX for this. I can do that. If we can open up the world as a marketplace for smart, interconnected energy generation and consumption, I think that's going to be a, a paradigm change. We certainly will be following and believing and rooting for this paradigm change and many others uh, here on Suncast. Mark Moroz is an instructional design and innovation leader, a true pioneer in the solar energy industry with more than four decades of experience and wisdom, which have been imparted in many ways here with us today. Mark, it's an honor. I enjoy listening to your musings, my friend, and I'm so grateful that you've given us so much time here to get to know you. I'm really thankful. I'm truly thankful that you gave me this opportunity. It's been really fun. All right. All right. That brings part two of this epic two-part download on Mark Moreau's The Solar Pioneer leading solar education since the 70s. This guy's one of my heroes in the industry. He has been on every major team that's worth being on, and he understands how the industry has grown. He has led an extraordinary life and and one that's not always in the limelight. So I want a hat tip to Mark Moreau's really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did too. And hey, if you're eager to share your takeaways or thoughts with Mark or I, or connect with either of us, you could check out his LinkedIn and his Twitter and social media links, as well as mine over at mysuncast.com. You can also find other resources like book recommendations, links to the Oculus Quest on Amazon, and other goodies that were explored in this episode. While you are there at mysuncast.com, I'd love it if you'd take our listener survey. Give me your feedback. How can we make this better for you? Why are you listening? Why are you here? And how can we help you keep coming back? What can we do to make sure that you get even more out of it and that you'd be willing to tell your barber and baker and candlestick maker all about the show? I hope that you'll tune in on this Thursday because we've got Greg Dixon, founder of Voltus, a really fantastic and exciting startup up in the Boston area, just raised a $25 million round of investment. We're going to talk all about how, why, when, where, and why that company is the next big thing that you haven't heard of yet. So tune in on Thursday. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks once again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle. Solar Warrior.